0: found in Matthew 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and 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 have come to worship him. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks this morning that you do speak to us, that you have revealed yourself in your son, Jesus, and also here in your word. We ask that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful things in this portion of your scriptures. Dig out for us ears that we would hear from you. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at, an, at the earthly origin story of the Mo- Messiah through the lens of his genealogy. And now we've seen that genealogies are more than just mere biological information, more than just names on a page, but they tell stories. Even Ancestry.com knows this. They offer a free trial, and they invite you to build your family tree and uncover your story. You see, genealogies give us names of ancestors. Sometimes we even see faces. But beyond that, they give us a narrative that helps us understand the world and our place in it. And this one earlier in Matthew, at the beginning of his book, that one in particular tells us who Jesus is, that he's the fulfillment of God's promise to David to give him a son. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And it also informs Jesus' life. It informs his mission. that he is to save his people from our sins. So this morning we come to a passage following that genealogy and that birth of the world's true king. Here we see obscure pagan figures from a far-off country coming to offer tribute to an unlikely king. And almost immediately, we see the world's response to God with us, to Emmanuel. I just finished reading the last book in the Wingfeather Saga, Uh, if you've ever read that. It's by an author named Andrew Peterson. He's a singer, a Christian singer, songwriter as well. It's a fantasy fiction series, much like The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbits, or The Chronicles of Narnia. And in it, Peterson creates a world and this world is called Air. Er we are, And at the center of this world is a shining island, the shining isle of Anira. It's ruled by the king of Anira and it's protected by the king's older brother, the, the throne warden. This island is a sort of sacred, enchanted space, a place where people live in peace and flourishing, where all the longings of the heart are, are fulfilled. But eventually, Anira faces an enemy it can't defeat, and it's conquered by Nag the Nameless. You would think that the nameless one wouldn't have a name, but he does. Nag the Nameless. And the king and the throne warden are presumed dead, and the whole world is plunged into darkness and decay. But over the years, there are rumors, rumors, Spread and prophecies are told that the jewels of Anira remain. That the king and his throne warden are alive. And they're in hiding across the dark sea of darkness. What a dark place. They're waiting for the right time to take back their home. And in the third book, The Monster in the Hollows, the king traverses back across the dark sea of darkness with his throne warden to the shores of the Green Hollows. The Green Hollows is the only place that has not yet been conquered by Nag the Nameless. But what the Hollows folks see isn't a king. It's not some mighty king riding in on his ship with his crown and his army. They see actually a wolf king. The king of Anira has been transformed by the dark magic of Nag the nameless. He's been transformed into a walking, talking wolf man. Now, the important thing to understand about the green hollows is that they've been fighting, walking, talking wolves. And so you can imagine, when the king shows up looking like the enemy, what kind of welcome he receives. You wouldn't likely bow to a king that looks like a wolf. Some were shocked and terrified that the enemy has infiltrated their ranks. Some were carefree. Others were fascinated by the wolf king. Some even bowed in homage, not because of his appearance, but because of his title. Still others were quite cruel. But when the king shows up, his entrance, regardless of his appearance, demands some kind of response. And the same is true for King Jesus the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Magi, when they come and ask, they say, who, uh, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not one who was born to be king, but who is king. Where is he? The entrance of the king into the world of men de- demands a response. It demands a response from us God in his grace came to dwell among us in Jesus. And here in Matthew 2, we see the response to this entrance. We see it being played out in two ways. The first is a response of opposition. And the second is a response of obedience. When God enters the darkness and he takes on human flesh in Jesus for the salvation of the world, he doesn't leave room for a neutral response. And we see these two reactions in various degrees here in Matthew 2. So first in verses two to eight, we see the oppositional response to Jesus taking two forms, one in King Herod and another in the Jewish people in Jerusalem. We see an aggressive form of opposition to King uh, in King Herod to Jesus. Matthew tells us in Verse 3, that when the Magi asked where the king of the Jews was to be born, Herod was troubled, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And then later in verse 16, we read that Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under. But why? Why would a powerful king who's been appointed by the emperor, why would he grow so furious? Why would he be so paranoid and grow hostile and aggressive towards little boys? The answer comes when we understand a bit more about kings and stars. In the ancient world there was a fine line between astronomy, which is the study of the cosmos, And astrology, which is the attempt to interpret human affairs according to cosmological events. Very fine line. Stars, comets, and astrological events were often understood to be signs of leadership transitions, where they were marking the birth of a new king and or the death of an old king. So you can understand why Herod would be so paranoid Rulers in that time often took it so seriously that they would kill a few of their high ranking officials because they were paranoid that those officials, those officials were conspiring against them or that they were trying to fulfill the cosmological predictions on others rather than themselves. They took this very seriously. And so you can understand why Herod was strangely unnerved and troubled at the news of a new king. He had spent years building his little kingdom in Judea, he wasn't going to let a boy king take it away from him because the entrance of a new king marked the entrance of a new kingdom. And he was not going to let that happen. And isn't that the case for all of us? When something or someone threatens the very thing we've worked the hardest for, when something or someone threatens the thing our hearts burn for, we grow hostile, and we grow aggressive. Where God's kingdom enters, whether it's a a, a communist country ruled by a narcissistic dictator or our own hearts, either one, there's always a possibility of hostility, always the opportunity for aggressive opposition. But for many of us, we probably don't struggle with hostility towards Jesus as much as complacency. We won't become aggressive, we'll just be apathetic. And we see this complacency, this complacent opposition in the re- religious folks in Jerusalem. It says in verse 4 that when Herod was troubled, the whole, pe- the whole uh, city of Jerusalem was troubled. That the chief priests and the scribes of the people, they were called to Herod to ascertain where the Messiah would be born. And these chief priests and the scribes, they quote the prophets. They know Micah. They quote Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. See, the, these were the folks that knew their Bible. The chief priests and the scribes. They, the chief priests were the officials who would minister in the temple And the scribes were the legal experts trained in the judicial system of the Old Testament. They knew what they were doing. They knew their Bible well. But both groups gathered to King Herod rather than to King Jesus. They had grown complacent. In order to make Jerusalem great, they had aligned themselves with a politician rather than the shepherd of Israel. But notice it wasn't just these religious elite. It wasn't just the chief priests and the scribes. It was all Jerusalem. All Jerusalem had grown troubled when King Herod was troubled. They trembled when he trembled. All of Jerusalem, along with with their chief priests and scribes, had aligned themselves with this megalomaniac. They knew with their heads that the prophet said the Messiah would be born in in Bethlehem. They knew it. They knew their Bible well, and still they stayed home. Still no one followed the pagan Magi to the kingly Messiah. They'd grown complacent, aligning themselves with with someone who felt safe, and they stayed at home. and now these chief priests and these scribes, all Jerusalem that Matthew talks about, they didn't just exist 2,000 years ago. They exist among us, among American Christians, and sometimes even inside our own hearts. We often grow complacent, aligning ourselves with politicians or political parties, social movements, or athletic teams. Millions of people watched the games yesterday, including myself. Some were controlled by the ups and downs of the emotional games because they were aligning themselves with something other than Jesus. These are the struggles of the church. These are the human struggles of all of us, growing complacent toward Jesus rather than walking with the magi. Are we going to grow to, 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 to stay home like the chief priests and the scribes? Or are we going to set all our allegiances aside and walk with the Magi to worship the king, the God who came to dwell among us, the, the creator of the world, the king of the world, who came to dwell with us? So if the first response is one of aggression and complacent opposition, the Magi reveal to us a second response, to the entrance of the divine King, Jesus. The response of obedience. We see this in verses one and verses nine through 12. Says that when they saw, uh, when they saw these wise men were from the east and they came to Jerusalem when they saw the star. These magi, uh, all of us have wondered who the magi are. Are they kings? You know, we have songs called the We Three Kings. Or are they uh, uh, stargazers or are they advisors? The Magi were well known in the ancient world as astrologers and royal advisors. They would interpret dreams and they would look at the stars and give advice to the kings. They're likely from Persia and they traveled a long distance with their whole caravan, potentially a thousand or fifteen hundred miles. And now all that they had left... Was six miles. To kind of put that in perspective, that's like going from Boston, Massachusetts to Jacksonville, and then from Christchurch down to Julian Creek. So that's that's all they had to continue to go was six more miles. It was a unique moment in history when God revealed through a celestial sign the magi and they obeyed. But it was only a partial revelation. They had to get to their final destination to discover the fuller revelation of the king of the Jews. And when they discovered that king with his mother in the house in Bethlehem, their obedience also took two forms, one of reverence and the other of worship. The first obedient response of the Magi is reverence or honor. It says in verse 11, they opened their treasures. They offered him gold and frankincense and myrrh. Often we try to find symbolic meaning in these gifts, as if gold is for his royalty, frankincense is for his divinity, and myrrh is for his, uh, his suffering and his death. But I'd argue that instead of trying to find meaning in these individual gifts, the meaning is, uh, is in the allusion to Psalm 72. It was there in verses 10, to t- 10 through 11. That the psalmist says, may the king of Tarshish and of the coastlands bring him tribute. And that him is the king of the Jews. The king of Israel. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands bring the king tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. While these magi aren't kings themselves... They are advisors. They are representatives of kings. And they discover in this little house in Bethlehem, the king to whom all the stories have been pointing. Here is the savior of the world. The one to whom all the nations would flow and who would offer their tribute. Matthew continues. He continues to show us that Jesus is the rightful son of David. He continues to show us He is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham and of Jacob. All the nations bring him tribute to honor him and to offer him their reverence. You see, when God enters into the world of men in Jesus, he's not content to just save a small group, a small group of people in Palestine. He's going to save the nations. The father says to the son in Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession and in a small way in a way that will be far greater at his second coming this is happening in bethlehem in matthew 2 in bethlehem in the land of judah god is drawing the nations to himself and they respond in worship they respond in reverence so how do we seek to honor jesus How are we seeking to use our time and our talent and our treasure? Do we come to him like the pagan magi, offering our gifts, however seemingly small they may be, asking him to use them for his will? We've seen the light shining in the darkness, born to a humble woman, living in an ordinary house in a podunk town of an insignificant kingdom. God entered. And it deserves not only our reverence, but also our worship. So the Magi show us that second response, that second obedient response of worship. It says in verses 10 through 11, that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped. They worshiped him. That word worship is used in 12 different instances in the book of Matthew. And three of those instances, a quarter of them, are used here in these 12 verses. Worship is a significant theme that Matthew Matthew will continue to expand throughout the rest of his book. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted to fall down and worship. Literally the same phrase. Fall down and worship Satan. But rather, he responds in obedience to worship the Lord alone. Other instances of people falling down and worshiping Jesus are in, uh, are in chapter 8, when a leper comes to him and falls down and worships him and asks him to heal him. A ruler with a dead child worships in chapter 9. A Canaanite woman worships in chapter 15. The mother of James and John, the disciples She worships Jesus in Matthew 20 and the disciples worship him in chapters 14 and 28. You see, Matthew begins his book here in chapter two with worship. Worshiping the incarnate King Jesus who enters into the world to save us from our sins. He also concludes in chapter 28 with the worship of the resurrected King Jesus who conquered the darkness by way of death and resurrection. Turn with me to Matthew 28. The women, when they had discovered the empty tomb, were told by the angel that Jesus was resurrected. So they went to tell the disciples. And it says in verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell his disciples, as Jesus' disciples. And behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then in verse 16, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. From the beginning to the end, Matthew indicates for us that worship of the world's true king, King Jesus, is the hallmark of the Christian life. And it's not just on Sundays. It's every day of the week. That's why we come here week in and week out. That's why week after week we are seeking to train ourselves in the art of worship so that throughout the week we can worship our Lord. Let's learn to be like the Magi, to follow that star, to offer to God our tribute and our our reverence, to offer him our worship, to bring him our tribute and reference and to prostrate ourselves before him, to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the God who came to dwell among us. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are weak. We don't know how to respond. We don't know how to worship or to give you our reverence as we ought. So we ask for your help. Would you teach us? Teach us to live in obedience. Teach us to offer to you a sacrifice of praise using our gifts for your glory and offering to you thanks with all of our lives. Would we rejoice day in and day out, week in and week out? Would we rejoice just like the Magi when they discovered you? And would we fall down on our faces in worship? Pray in Jesus' name.